March 13th, 1919. Editor of the Times-Picayune, New Orleans. Esteemed mortal, they have never caught me, and they never will. They have never seen me, for I am invisible, even as the ether which surrounds your earth. I am not a human being, but a spirit and a fell demon from hottest hell. I am what you Orleanians and your foolish police call the Axeman. When I see fit, I shall come again and claim other victims. I alone know whom they shall be. I shall leave no clue, except perhaps my bloody axe, besmeared with the blood and brains of he whom I have sent below to keep me company. If you wish, you may tell the police to be careful not to rile me. Of course, I am a reasonable spirit. I take no offense at the way in which they have conducted their investigations in the past. In fact, they have been so utterly stupid so as to amuse not only me, but his satanic majesty, Francis Joseph, etc. But tell them to beware. Let them not try to discover what I am, for it were better that they never were born than for them to incur the wrath of the Axeman. I don't think that there is any need of such a warning, for I feel sure that your police will always dodge me, as they have in the past. They are wise and know who to keep away from all harm. Undoubtedly, you Orleanians think of me as a most horrible murderer, which I am. But I could be much worse if I wanted to. If I wished to, I could pay a visit to your city every night. At will, I could slay thousands of your best citizens, for I am in close relationship with the Angel of Death. Now, to be exact, at 12.25 o'clock, earthly time, on next Tuesday night, I am going to pass over New Orleans. In my infinite mercy, I am going to make a little proposition to the people. Here it is. I am very fond of jazz music and I swear by all the devils in the nether regions that every person shall be spared in whose house a jazz band is in full swing at the time I have just mentioned. If everyone has a jazz band going, well, then so much the better for the people. One thing is certain, and that is some of those persons who do not jazz it on Tuesday night, if there be any, will get the axe. Well, as I am cold and crave the warmth of my native Tartarus, and as it is about time that I have left your homely earth, I will cease my discourse, hoping that thou wilt publish this, that it may go well with thee. I have been, am, and will be the worst spirit that ever existed either in fact or 
the realm of fancy, the Axeman. I'm Leslie. I'm Holly. And we would be dead. this time (laughs) guys I uh we just recorded about 20 minutes and then I realized that the recorder was on pause we just had a good dress rehearsal for the first half of this podcast it was um we had a lot of energy it was great a lot of energy (laughs) oh man oh man (laughs) I am horrified but we are back we are uh that was a, a great opening by our editor, John Cadity. Yeah, so just so you guys know, Leslie did read me that letter so that I could hear it before we went in. And I thought, the first thing I thought she said was a steamed mortal. Which would be horrible. Not as, you know, <laughs> so, like a steamed human. Oh. Like, greetings, turkey. <laughs> I guess that's more smoked, yeah. but still, ew. It's esteemed, obviously, but. We're just like little dumplings. <laughs> They're in like the little bamboo container. Yeah. <laughs> like that Pixar cartoon. Oh, that's the, so... The sad little dumpling boy. Yeah. I don't like that one. She eats him in the end. It's oh, terrible. Sure. That's true. But that's it. Well... There he is. That was my inspiration. Steamed mortals. Yeah. <laughs> Ooh. Gross. So gross. <laughs> I also love the line um, that this Axeman wrote in this letter uh, where he said... I am very fond of jazz music. Very like, fond. <laughs> I have a proposition for you. I'm very fond of jazz music. I'm going to be very formal about this for yes. a second before I go say some more wild shit. Yeah. Hey, yeah. hey Leslie. Hey, Holly. Hey, Fee. It's an accidental Leslie episode this week. It sure is. <laughs> we didn't intend on making Leslie write this whole damn thing. It just kind of happened. Allow me to explain. During the pandemic, we did a super fun campfire story night on New Orleans. Obviously, we're still in a pandemic. This was lockdown. Um, and today being Fat Tuesday, mm. les élèves en roulés, we thought this was a good time to bring our New Orleans episode to all of you. So um, we also have a habit of exploring our older campfire story events in the wintertime because they have lots of awesome stories that we kind of feel deserve the full podcast treatment. And if you're new here... Campfires are live stream story hours where we tell each tell a story. So it's a story swap, kind of like last week, usually in its reader's digest form. While we have like a few dozen glasses of wine, or in this case, French 75s, and interact with anybody who cares to attend. They're super fun. And we also have one coming up this month. So stay tuned for that. Uh, We started doing campfire events because during lockdown, we just kind of wanted to connect with everybody and we didn't have anything to do. So why not talk about some spooky stuff? So in our New Orleans campfire, Leslie talked about the Axeman murders and I talked about Delphine LaLaurie. Now, while we were writing this episode for our main feed, Leslie quickly realized that what we had on our hands was not one episode, but two full episodes. Yeah. Yeah, she called me last night. It was like, it's long. 
<laughs> it's so long. I can't. <laughs> did you know that there was all of this stuff? I did not know because I only heard your original version of it. I guess I've heard it in other yeah. places too. But I was I like, just you didn't. were like, yeah. I know. I I don't know. So anyway, uh, you guys are going to get two out of this instead of one. I'll, I'll have an episode coming for you on Delphine LaLaurie. Um, and this week you get to hear about the Axeman from Leslie. So exciting. Um, and as you know, Leslie only writes a full episode every blessed few months. So doing two full episodes and a story swap in the span of just a couple weeks is like pretty intense for poor Leslie. <laughs> How are you feeling over there? I am, uh, I've got to be honest, Holly. I am like tired. I am, yeah. I am crampy. I'm like You're dry. looking tired. Little pale. My, I'm like saggy a little, yeah, like a in little the bit. eyes. I think you could probably use some <gasps> validation. Yes, no judgment here. We could all use some of that. I know. Just before you got here, I was googling Botox, and what mm. I discovered, hard to believe, validation is much cheaper. Wow. Yeah, I a think lot. that they use um synthetic validation in that too. Yeah, so. they just put a little bit in the Botox. They don't want you to know that, but we're here to tell you. Mm-hmm. And <laughs> science facts. Yeah. And you, our beloved beans, can provide some validation completely for free. How, you might ask, but only if your brand's banking new here because we mention it every week. Well, you can head on over to Apple Podcasts or Spotify and leave us a five-star rating and or a friendly review. It really is the best and only way to move this podcast forward. Honestly, podcasts are still kind of in the dark ages of entertainment and world of, word of mouth slash suggestions from the all-knowing algorithm wizards. Mm are the most important things when it comes to growth. So please rate and review if you have not done so already. And if you want more We Would Be Dead in your life, you can support us over on Patreon. As a patron, just for a few dollars a month, you will get access to a ton of additional content, including our video after show host mortem, special mini-sodes, all of our 30-minute horror movies. I'd like to do another um, Leprechaun film, probably Leprechaun 2 this March. Okay, is that... Jennifer Aniston in this one? I don't know. I hope, I sure hope so. (laughs) Me too. She was a dream. Yes. (laughs) That was really, actually a really fun movie to do. I remember Mm -hmm. we had fun with that one. Um, As a patron, you will also get special offers on our merchandise, a little gift in the mail from us, an on-air toast dedicated just to you, and more. And if all of that was a little too much for you, as I mentioned earlier, word of mouth is also super important. You can simply share anything on our social media feeds to your social media feed, Post about your favorite episodes. Let us know when you're listening. Tag us in something fun. Like, share, engage, join our Facebook group, which is personally my favorite place to be. Tell a friend, tell a neighbor, tell that person you know who goes like a little bit overboard celebrating Mardi Gras in their non-New Orleans suburban home. You know, the one who decorates and wears masks and has beads all over the place. What's their name? Ashley. Ashley. It is Ashley. It's totally Ashley. Then your friends and Ashley can become fiends and we can all hang out together. And you know Ashley's bringing a good time. Oh, she always brings a good time. She's bringing the cocktails. She's bringing the beads. She's getting wild. Mm -hmm. It's going to be fun. It's like you're always a little nervous. You're like, is she going to bring too much of a good time? And then you're like, no, no, no. There's no such thing. We needed that good time. (laughs) (laughs) Thank God for Ashley. Also, stay on the lookout for our St. Patrick's Day live campfire event. I think this time we might cook something with our friend John. Exciting. I know John does make up for our lives a lot, but he is also an excellent chef and pastry chef. And I said, hey, maybe we do something different. Um, and he said, hey, yeah. Little we would be bread. <laughs> oh, I love it. Mm-hmm. Maybe we would be soda bread if we're feeling Irish. 
Uh, it should be an adventure either way. We'll talk about Irish legends and folklore, probably wear something ridiculous, and generally have a great time. And I think that is all I have. Oh, yeah, look for um, a, vo- a poll. We're going to have voting on what day you would like us to have that live because St. Patrick's Day is on like a, like a Thursday, I think. Yeah. So we were talking about doing it on the actual day, but we don't know when the youths want to go out to right. celebrate. Are you going out on the weekend? Are you going out on St. Patrick's Day proper? Tell us what mm-hmm. we should do. Or like the elders. We, we have a yeah. wide range of listeners. Or like just don't go out and hang out with us. Yeah. It's cheaper. It's more fun. No one's going to like throw up on you or spill green beer on you. Yeah. I think we're the clear better option. For sure. Anyway, now that we got that out of the way. Okay. <laughs> Leslie, do you have anything to add before we begin? Well, unfortunately, I left all of my news this week at home. So mm. I'm sorry. You recorded it before and just couldn't get the magic back. <laughs> I couldn't. No. <laughs> What if I was like, well, I had something, but you missed it. Sorry. (laughs) Already said it. Only saying it once. Lost Even though it's not your fault. Yeah. (laughs) It's out in the ether now. Mm, Yeah, I guess if you're a patron, maybe we'll tell you. Yeah. Support us on Patreon. Yeah. All right, then. (laughs) On with the show. Now, I know this is a Leslie episode, but because we did it in a very strange fashion, uh, I have a little bit of fun New Orleans information for you before we start. Uh, As I mentioned, this week we are headed to the Crescent City, or the Big Easy, New Orleans, Louisiana. Now, what are those nicknames all about, you might wonder? Well, the first one is pretty simple. The original portion of New Orleans, uh, what we now call the French Quarter, was built on a sharp bend in the Mississippi River, and so it is shaped like a crescent. Cute, like a little moon. Yeah, that's so cute. I always, I keep thinking of a crescent roll. That too. too. Yeah. Delicious. Yeah. Just like a real buttery. I love a crescent <laughs> roll. Okay. But I guess it would be a, a croissant. Croissant. Yeah. Because it's French over yeah. there. Croissant. Yeah, super French. Anyway, the Big Easy is a little more complicated of a nickname. Some people will attribute it to 1960s New Orleans gossip columnist Betty Gillard or Gillard, however you want to pronounce this who allegedly compared the Big Easy, being New Orleans, to the Big Apple, which was New York. Reader's Digest writer Juliana LaBianca writes, quote, while New Yorkers were perpetually running around, laid-back life in New Orleans uh, reigned, hence calling it the Big Easy. Mm -hmm. Adorable. You guys are the Big Apple, but we're the Big Easy. Yeah. So that's how she put it. And that's cute. Yeah. And it's a nice, neat little story. But it's not exactly the real origin of the name. Which is kind of, I, I hope it's interesting because, like, the real origin, because that one is kind of corny. Oh, yeah. <laughs> no, this one's much better. <laughs> this, is, of course, is like another case of white people trying to take credit for stuff they have no business claiming. Mm. The nickname... Do, do we do that? I mean, <laughs> just, like, occasionally. Okay. Not a lot, of course. <laughs> Not white people. <laughs> what? We're great. Oh, God. So, anyway, the nickname The Big Easy actually dates back to the 1910s. <gasps> Yes, which is the time period of this week's episode. How convenient. I know. The Big Easy was actually a black-only dance hall run kind of undercover by a man named Paul Batson. Now, the Big Easy was very famous in its community, but its location is really, like, dodgy. Not a people, like, didn't know where it was. I think it's the kind of thing where you had to, like, ask and find out. It may not have exactly... I know. It's kind of like a, a precursor to the, like, speakeasy type right. situations, which we'll get into after Prohibition. Abition hits, which is very shortly after this. So anyway, 
The Big Easy is a, a dance hall, a popular place for musicians to play in early jazz. And um, I don't know if I said this or not, but it was run by a man named Paul Batson. Mm -hmm. This name, The Big Easy, took hold across the city um, because there were lots of venues like this opening up and it became known as a place where it was, you could perform jazz music for a living. Oh, okay. So it was easy to exist in New Orleans for artists because there were so many opportunities for them to actually make money as opposed to a lot of other places, especially jazz musicians who were almost all black where they just like didn't have places where they could play. Mm -hmm. Incidentally, New Orleans and Louisiana also had slightly different Jim Crow laws because they followed the like French Caribbean rules as opposed to what the rest of the United States did. So there was slightly more wiggle room for black citizens of the time to be able to kind of have a living. Okay. So New Orleans was the big easy. Nice. Yeah. I like that one better, right? Yeah, for sure. Yeah. Well, anyway, that's pretty interesting stuff. Okay. So now I'm going to let you take now it away. Me? Axe it down. Oh, man. All right. Mm -hmm. Taking a swing. So, Fiends, as we said, this was originally a campfire story. And when I first researched it all those years ago, I don't even know if it was like before I ever wrote an episode or not. But um, it may have been. It may have been. It may have or been before least, you wrote Thomas Watt. Yeah. <laughs> Bringing the heat. Bro it was it. before I brought the heat. <laughs> heat was um, way on the back burner. <laughs> Uh, I had saw a, a little TV show on the travel, it was on the travel <laughs> channel, and it was hosted by uh, Freddy Krueger, the actor that plays oh, Robert England? Yes. And, uh, and he did a little piece on the Axeman. <laughs> and learned uh, about this from Freddy Krueger. Yeah. And I was like, oh, this is really cool. And then, and it was really fun because it involved Source accomplished. jazz music. Yeah. And, you know, that letter that we heard at the beginning about like needing to play so jazz creepy. music. So I just thought, I was like, this is such like a cool little story. And Plus perfect. it's in um, American Horror Story Coven. Yeah. Yeah. So but I, at been... that time, I hadn't watched that yet. Oh, really? So, yeah. That's I've one of my favorite seasons. Yeah. So, yeah, I just was like, oh, this is like a fun little story that mm -hmm. I could tell a campfire. And then I did a little bit more research and everything that I found was these short little stories of it that just, that were like 20, 30 minutes long. Right. So that's what my story for Campfire was. And then when I right. pulled it up this time to kind of, you know, fluff it out so as long. we do. Yeah. Um, I did one Google search and realized that there was an entirely other half to this story Whoops. that um, I do actually think wasn't as popular yet. But okay. when we searched it, um, when I first did the research. But yeah, so I, that's when I called Holly and said, hey, there's like 10 years of other killings to mm -hmm, this story mm -hmm, that mm -hmm. I need to include for this to be done well. Main feed worthy. Yeah. yeah. Campfires are a little bit different. We're yeah. like interacting with people. We're telling you a shorter version. It's more storytelling and less of like a lesson. I had a, I had this little tiny paragraph in there saying like, hey, he calls back to this killing that happened like 10 years ago. And there were just a, like a spur of other killings that happened around that area at that time. Mm -hmm. But it didn't seem like it was actually connected. So, right. But now it does kind of seem like it's connected. Yeah. So. I also forgot that both of these cases were in American Horror Story Coven because I did Delphine LaLaurie, which was Kathy yes. Bates' character. Mm -hmm. And then uh, so that was, I think, part of why we did them together, too. Okay. That makes sense. All right. Well. From May 1918 to October 1919, the locals of New Orleans, Louisiana, and surrounding communities were living in panic over an active serial killer dubbed the Axe Man. 
The axe man would typically break into his victim's home at night after they went to sleep by removing a panel off the back door with a chisel. Ew. Oh, God. Those old doors are like are like held together by pressure. So I'm guessing you could just knock the middle of the door out. Yeah. And then also like I, I can show you because you're in the My door is like that too. But that little, so a lot of them would be a back door that might have like a window up top. Mm-hmm. And then there's like these two little panels on the bottom, mm-hmm. right? Just one of them was. So he was entering through these little holes. He's like sliding in this which little Which is half. why some people do believe. And even again, in that letter that was written mm-hmm. at the beginning, like some people kind of believe he wasn't human because it was like a small little hole that he got through. It's just a weaselly little just, person. Yeah. Ew, that's worse. Right? Yep. Much worse. Well, so he never brought his own weapon, but instead borrowed or stole one from either his victim's home or from like another grocery store, um, just something that he found. Usually it was an axe. And I say borrowed because he typically left the bloody weapon on site. And I don't mean like bloody weapon. <laughs> a bloody weapon. Yeah. <laughs> I mean like a weapon that was bloody. Was I say bloody. that a lot. So I just had to get that out because otherwise at some point I was going to be like the bloody weapon. <laughs> I hope you still do that. Yeah. I'm excited for it. The majority of the Axeman victims were Italian immigrants, leading many to believe the crimes were ethnically motivated. So a brief history. Italians began immigrating to the U.S. during the Civil War. Most of the Italian immigrants in New Orleans were from Sicily and had pretty dark skin. They didn't fit neatly in the white or black categories and were willing to do jobs that whites weren't. And as a group, they did well economically. Many of them started working for low wages at the sugar plantations, but would save for a few years and then leave to start their own businesses, usually a fruit shop or grocery store in town. By 1900, 19% of the grocery stores in New Orleans were Italian-owned, and by 1920, that number jumped up to 50%. That is so much. Uh, and also, what's interesting about these grocery stores is that when they would pop up, they a lot of them were on the corners of the street, but they were also built to be, like, in the front of a building. So a lot oh, of the okay. families, like, owned the front of the shop, and then they lived in the back or behind. on the second floor of them. That's, that, that's something that perpetuated into, like, the... 50s and 60s, too. Absolutely, yeah. If you Mm -hmm. had, like, a mom-and-pop store, you lived there, too. Yeah. My dad's Mm -hmm. grandparents owned, like, a general store like that, and they lived in the apartment above it. Mm -hmm. So despite their commercial success, Sicilian immigrants couldn't protect themselves from racial prejudices of the American South, which led the Italians to handle their own disputes because of their lack of trust in the authorities. This was a mindset brought with them from their home in Sicily, too. The handling of disputes, also known as vendettas, both personal and professional, weren't particularly uncommon. There were so many shootings and knife fights occurring along Decatur Street that it was nicknamed Vendetta Alley. Ooh. This type of crime slowly went away as the new generation of Italian-Americans grew up and could better communicate with the police. Many of you are familiar with the mafia, but that's not what this was. The mafia is more like organized crime, but these disputes were more about petty extortion called black hand crimes. Victims were threatened with violence if the money demanded wasn't paid. The point of me giving you all this backstory, besides the fact that almost every victim is an Italian grocer, many believe that the mafia or a black hand attack was responsible for the Axman murders and not an individual psychopath. Hmm. Interesting. Very interesting. Yeah. So before we get into some of the killings, I'm actually going to have Holly take it from here. She's going to do, she's going to tell the rest of the story. Just kidding. Ah. Uh, (laughs) Just kind of set the scene. What was this time in New Orleans like? Okay. 
So uh, New Orleans was on the precipice of modernization in the 1910s, as was the rest of the country, which creates some pretty funny dichotomies, such as horse-drawn carriages trotting down unpaved roads, but above head there would still be power lines. Right. So it's like the new world is kind of creeping in, but the old world is still there. It's like a weird bridge between things. Yeah. Like you could have a car and a horse on the road. Oh, man. That sounds awful. It does. Sounds like... It's a competition. I don't want to be in. Car is just swerving around shit all day. Everything's filthy. And you know filthy. that they don't have wipers yet. Ew! Oh, I don't like that thought at all. Leslie. I think I think that was a fun fact I gave one time. I think wipers were created by, um, like, a wife. Like, a woman. She was in the car and she needed some way to clean something. Yeah. She was like, I wish we had some to wipe this away. Wipers, if you will. Yeah, I forget. I feel like it was... It could have been. Someone's wife. Again, we just talked about um, how when after we say things, they fall out of our head. (laughs) Once it's in an episode, I can't bring it back, probably. So anyway, uh, in the 1910s, food staples were a little less... um, They were like voyaging into the pre-prepared and away from the like everything has to be made from scratch. Mm-hmm. And this was pretty much in the presence of World War One, which saw in some military rationing. So as the decade wore on, canned food items got to be a little more popular and so did some kind of weird food choices, but that's neither here nor there. We also saw the creation of many things that we all still know and love, like the Whitman Sampler. Yes. Leslie and I love to play Candy Roulette. Oh, it's such a good time. It's really fun. I won't let her look at the map. Like you can't look at the map of what kind of candies are. Mm-hmm. You just have to pick one and bite it. And yeah. see what happens. Sometimes it's great. Sometimes it's dusty and gross. Oh, yeah. Sometimes it's a booger. Sometimes <laughs> it's earwax flavored. It's a birdie bot selection. <laughs> I will never forget the time we both got salted caramel. Oh, that was wow. the best day. It really was. That never happens. Sometimes you'll get two garbage chocolates in yeah. a row and then you just want to quit your life. Yeah, like the dry chocolate one. Ew, the dusty one. Yeah, that's the dusty one. Ew, I hate that one. <sighs> Or you, or there's nothing in it. It's just solid chocolate. You're like, what the fuck? Yeah. I feel like I got ripped off. Oh, that's in because you bite into it like it's going to be soft. And then mm-hmm. you're like, ah, ah. too. Yep. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Don't like that either. Not even a bit. Anyway, we also saw in this era the invention of the Oreo cookie. Yes. Those are accidentally vegan. Milk's favorite cookie. Yeah. They used no dairy whatsoever to make it. That's so funny. <laughs> they also uh, invented marshmallow fluff and lifesavers at that point in time. Yeah. A lot of sweet things. Tuition at Harvard University was just $700. All right. Uh-huh. Great. Um, science discovered the ozone layer. Science yeah. was also part of Yeah, there was era. just some science. I didn't look up who did it. I just know that it happened. The Guys, ozone layer, I have I to really pull myself back because, as you know, when I fall down a rabbit hole, you get a whole lesson on everything I talk about. Yeah. So listing bullet point facts is hard for me. <laughs> <laughs> You're doing great. Thank you. Daylight savings time came into effect, Mm -hmm. which makes a lot of people really mad, including my husband. He hates daylight savings time. I like that it's going to be light next week for longer, though. Right. Anyway. I wonder which one was correct. I don't know what how we started. We did. And again, this was an episode that we did. I talked about this. Remember? Yeah, because you're good at facts. I did a whole piece about it. You did. Did a whole history. Somebody remember. It's not us. (laughs) We sure don't remember. One of the presidents also brought it back Mm -hmm. in. It went away for a while. It did. Yeah. However, this is when it started. Okay. Also, the 1910s saw the first successful blood transfusion using stored blood, not like just person to person. This is like blood that was stored in a bag. 
Cars were rare, as I said before, and another fun fact about them is that in 1910, the speed limit in most cities was just 12 miles per hour. Okay, can't that be, makes sense. Can't be running over people walking down the road or horses. No, absolutely not. Going all fast. Yeah, because yeah, at that time, people used, they walked on the streets yeah. still. Mm-hmm. There weren't sidewalks. No, so the cars and horses and people are just existing in the same place. Yeah. When, can't when be going sidewalks fast. started? I don't know. I wish Probably. we'd get some in our neighborhood. <laughs> There's none down here. And it blows my mind that we don't have sidewalks. I know. Well, because we don't live in an area that you're supposed to walk around in, which makes me so mad. I kind of do. I, you like, do, but now, they don't make it that way. I know. We don't have sidewalks. Do you guys have, <laughs> do you guys have sidewalks? <laughs> so jealous. You're just getting mad about it. I grew up with sidewalks. Yeah. As a kid, you can ride your bike on the sidewalk and not like Same, yeah. get hit with a car. Yeah. Anyway, I got real mad about that for a minute. More fun stuff. <laughs> the Titanic sank in the early hours of April 15th, um, 1912. Okay. The now infamous passenger cruise ship, the RMS Titanic, stuck in the North Atlantic. It was the ship's maiden voyage. We all know that. It was supposed to dock in New York City from its departure point in Southampton. So there's Americans involved in that too. Uh, fashion had a distinct moment, especially for women. Large, ornate hats were popular. Hmm. Loved like a feather. Yeah. A bobble. A put frill. A, put a bird on it. Put a bird on it, for real. Yeah. Skirts shrank from their antebellum who passed into a more form-fitting silhouette. Men were mostly still wearing suits, but they also tended to be more utilitarian and less opulent. So this is a more durable fabric and less like paisley silk or something. Okay. Um, Hats also shifted from top hats to bowlers. So everything is kind of moving into a more functional fashion. Like you you have to be able to do stuff in your clothes. Okay. Children began actually dressing like children and less like little adults. Boys wore knickers and knee socks, and girls wore looser, shorter, more durable dresses and pinafores. Mm, I love a loose dress. Arguably the most comfortable article of clothing. For sure. Super comfy. So airy. Yeah. So free. (laughs) Yeah. So durable. (laughs) And then you can just cinch it with a little nipple belt. Yeah. A little tulip tulip dress or whatever you wore all the time. (laughs) A bubble dress. Anyone that's new is like, what the fuck is a nipple belt? Go back and listen to our episode on Ed Gein (laughs) and then watch our Halloween campfire stories from a year and a half ago and you'll see Leslie wearing one. Yeah. And also on our YouTube channel, you could see our QVC inspired Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. commercial. Listen, we got really caught up on that nipple belt when it happened. Anyway. Some fun New Orleans facts of the time. In 1914, the bubonic plague was detected in rats in New Orleans, and a small outbreak followed. Approximately 30 people died of the Black Death, which prompted a rather extreme reaction Mm -hmm. um, because, like, people knew the plague was this, like, terrifying thing of old. Right. Um, They immediately would, like, board up houses and create these, like, quarantine compounds for anybody that was exposed they were not nice. You were, like, locked in a hole, basically. I could see this happening again. I know. It was when, just like, panic. <laughs> I, well, yeah, yeah. COVID might be the same thing. And then they would, like, if you were exposed, everything, people would, once they, like, drug you out of your house and threw you in this boarded-up place, they would take all of the things in your house, like, all your furniture and clothes and stuff, and burn them in the street. Oh, wow. Yeah. It was not fun. They also issued a citywide, like, rat eradication and, like, rats were very prevalent back then. Oh, yeah. So yeah. it was just, like, this insane roundup to murder all the rats in New Orleans. <laughs> they reacted pretty strongly to the plague. <laughs> they really needed Charlie from Always Sunny to come in. They and- did. <laughs> if only. If only. He would have known what to do. I know. It's too bad for 1914 New yeah. Orleans. They <laughs> lost out. 
1911, the Jefferson Davis Monument was erected in New Orleans. Jefferson Davis was, of course, the president of the Confederate States from 1861 to 1865. So that shows you their political leanings. Hmm. There were also newsies. I saw pictures with, like, adorable little newsboys. Right. I mentioned this. I don't have any follow-up. I mentioned it just for you. Thank you. You're welcome. I know you love a newsie. They were probably sad and had dysentery and with broken legs, but they they were really cute. I would have I would have fed them little bowls of mush. Bowls of mush you would yeah. have. That is precisely what you would have done. <laughs> uh, so while slavery in the South had ended, there were at this point in time rampant and harsh Jim Crow laws still in effect or actually just being put into effect. So um, you would have seen a pretty heavily segregated New Orleans back then. Of course, New Orleans is the home of the landmark Plessy versus Ferguson case, which happened just a few years prior in 1896. And in this case, the United States Supreme Court ruled that racial segregation laws did not violate the U.S. Constitution as long as the facilities for each race were equal in quality, a doctrine that became known as separate but equal. So separate but equal began in New Orleans, if you didn't know. Their streetcars were segregated, interracial marriages were illegal, um, and lynchings were a kind of a common occurrence. In fact, while these were distinctly a product of white-on-black horrific rage and violence, the white men in power at the time also tried to spin them as an effect of the races mixing. So they claimed that as long as we were separated, they wouldn't happen. Mm. How gross is that? Real gross. Mm-hmm. Fucking hate that. There were also fun popular crazes like the new card game Bridge. Yes. Delightful. Uh, And Americans were rushing to see the greatest show on earth, the Ringing Brothers and Barnum and Bailey Circus. Uh, W.D. Boyce founded the Boy Scouts on February 8th in 1910, an organization aimed to prepare young people in making ethical and moral life choices. Good for them. Giving birth at home was the norm, which is... Not that surprising. However, the surprising part of this fact is while hospitals were on the rise, more than 90% of the doctors during this point in time had not gone to medical school. Right. They were still gentlemen doctors who learned the trade from their neighbor or something. I mean, that's the key, though. It's it's all about experience. Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, you could could read that book front to back several times, but until you're out there, Catching babies. You don't know what's what. The plague. And the plague. No, you know, you got to know how to beat a rat. (laughs) Got to know how to beat a rat. (laughs) Is what I always say. (laughs) So that's that's the 19 teens in New Orleans at the time. It was a weird, it was a weird place to be. Yeah, it was a weird time. Weird time. Well, let's get weirder. Get weirder. Let's go. On May 23rd, 1918, at 490 Magnolia Street, New Orleans, the Axeman made his first known attack. Or so that's what I thought at the time. Oh, later you learn differently. (laughs) The victims, Joseph Maggio, an Italian grocer, and his wife, Catherine, were fast asleep in the bed. Before they could even wake up to defend themselves, the Axeman cut their throats with a straight razor before bashing them with Joseph's own axe. Ooh, very Sweeney Todd moment. Catherine was practically decapitated while Joseph was severely injured. Their bodies were found about two hours later by Joseph's brother, Andrew Maggio, who lived in the adjoining apartment next to them. Catherine was already dead, but Joseph died a few minutes after his brother found him. Mm. When authorities came to investigate, no one had heard or seen anyone or anything and no valuables were taken. They did find the murderer's bloody clothes, 
bloody clothes, Ooh, bloody <laughs> on, clothes. <laughs> on the ground and assumed that he must have changed into clean ones before leaving the home. They also found that the bottom panel of the kitchen door was knocked out and all that was found was an axe. So again, that like little small space that he like climbed Ew, through the door, right? Oh. And axe murders were more common back then because people left axes in their front yards all the time. That's where you cut wood to heat your home for the night. Mm-hmm. So like it's an opportunity. Like we don't really see as many of them today because like nobody's leaving an axe in their front yard. Right. Lastly, the investigators found a message written in chalk several blocks away from the Maggio home. It read, Mrs. Joseph Maggio will sit up tonight, just like Mrs. Tony. Jack the Ripper. So the first person police suspected was Joseph's brother, Andrew Maggio. Andrew Mm. was home during the murders, and he had told police he didn't hear or see anyone. The police were skeptical, but Andrew explained that before coming home for the night, he was out drinking heavily with friends. He was heading out with the Navy soon, and they were all celebrating. So he wasn't in the best of states to, like, even hear something. Like, he was just going to pass out. The police cleared him as they had nothing to link him to the murder anyway. Right. As for the note that was left, police theorized that this message referred to Mrs. Tony Scambra, or it's a S-C-I-M-B-R-A, or... Scambra? Yeah, Scambra, or... um. But I found out her name is Joanna Skiambra, mm-hmm. who was the wife of Anthony Skiambra, also known as Tony. So Mrs. Tony Skiambra. There you go. Mrs. Tony. An Italian grocer, of course. In May of 1912, while she and her husband were sleeping, an unknown man broke into their home and repeatedly shot her husband, killing him. Jesus. Two of the bullets passed through Tony's body and hit Joanna in the hip region. Uh, Their baby was also in the bed with them, but luckily was left unharmed. Oh, thank God. Tony died immediately, but Joanna survived for 10 more days before dying from, like, the gunshot wound. Terrible. So, at this point, the police weren't sure that they were looking for the same killer yet, but it did cause them to look at some other unsolved cases dating back to 1910, including the Scambra's case uh, that had some similarities. So we're going to go back a little bit, right? So we're 1918, and now this is where I'm like, oh, hey, there's all these other cases. Yeah, there you go. So we're going back in time. Come with me. All right. Early in the morning of August 13th, 1910, an Italian grocer named August J. Crudy was attacked while in bed with his wife at 4301 Royal Street. And this is going to be a common, like, theme. They're all going to be in bed asleep. The LaLaurie Mansion is on Royal Street, too. That's okay. funny. We, we did a really good job linking those cases together yeah. a long time ago. Keep going. His wife, Harriet, woke up to see a shadowy figure of a man standing over her holding the meat cleaver. <gasps> he demanded money from her or else he would do the same thing that he did to her husband. Ew. That's when she looked at her husband and saw that he had been hit several times in the head with the meat cleaver. She gave him money that she had stashed under her pillow. It was like about like $8. And he left out the back door, dropping the meat cleaver in the yard. That's where you keep the axe, not the meat cleaver. (laughs) The meat cleaver, I believe he probably, I think he stole like earlier. I don't think he was even theirs. Interestingly, though, he also, on his way out the door, he also took their mockingbird. What? So according to... Like a pet? Yeah. They had like a mockingbird in the house. So he like took the cage and the mockingbird. What an asshole. And he left. And um, he, as he was leaving, this is what witnesses saw. He uh, picked up, he had his shoes outside because he came into the house barefoot. He took his shoes off? Don't wreck the carpets. Yeah. Well, also to be quieter, yeah, probably. Yeah, right. So he had this bird. 
(laughs) He dropped the meat cleaver, grabbed his shoes, and then he headed down the street and then he stopped on a stoop where he let the bird go free and he put his shoes on and then (laughs) What a weird priority to have. I got to go, but like, I don't like a bird in a cage. Yeah. Well, August Crudy was severely wounded in the head with the meat cleaver. However, he did survive and worked until his death in 1943. Some investigators and historians believe this was the first attack from the axe man. Though the killer didn't use an axe, he did attack while the victims were sleeping and used a weapon uh, that was borrowed or stolen. Okay. Their neighbor told police that they caught a glimpse of the intruder as he was leaving the Crudy home. So Harriet's description and the neighbors... So people saw him? Yeah, but it was it was really early in the morning, so it's like pretty dark. It's so night. interesting that they saw mm-hmm. him. Yep, so this was the description that they um, gathered, that the police gathered. Mm-hmm. Uh, the man was about 36 or 37 years old, around 5 foot 6 inches tall, with broad shoulders and clean shaven. The man had dark hair, a thick nose and lips, and a rough husky voice. Mm. He looked like he was wearing dark trousers, a loose blue workman's shirt, and a black derby hat. So, two weeks later, police arrested uh, John Flannery for breaking into an Italian grocery store. John Flannery was a frequent flyer of the police station with a history Mm -hmm. of petty crimes to support his drug habits. He was addicted to morphine, um, which a lot of people, not a lot of people, but that was like the big drug to do. And a lot of the police did believe that whoever broke into their home because of some of his like weird manic things that he did, they did believe that he was probably on drugs. Okay. So when John Flannery kind of came about, they were like, hmm, this might be our guy. Yeah, that sounds right. We could blame that. Yeah. So they brought Harriet uh, Crudy in and without hesitation, she told police that that was their man. That was him. That's who it was. Done, done, done. Police thought that they had their man, but others weren't so sure, despite the fact that Flannery was in his mid-20s, not his mid-30s, as witnesses believed. Yeah, but that's like, you can't tell age. Although I feel like back then it was like 10 years was just like death. (laughs) He was mid-30s, well, close to dead. Yeah. (laughs) Um, He was also extremely mentally unwell, like clearly mentally unwell, and possibly not fit to even stand trial. Oh, this is a lot like Jack the Ripper. Yeah. The years of drug use seemed to have really taken a toll on him, and after a neurological exam, he was diagnosed with disorganized schizophrenia Mm. and deemed a real menace to society. Oh, that's sad. Some felt this only proved him more guilty. Uh, But then on September 20th, 1910, while Flannery was still in custody, there was another attack on Tonti Street and London Avenue, Mm. which is now like the AP Tarot Avenue. I don't know. So this happened at the home of Joseph and Conchetta Rizzetto. The happily married couple of 17 years owned a successful Italian grocery next door to their home. In the early morning hours of September 20th, a man broke into their home through the unlatched kitchen window. A lot of times, too, he would use like um, a railroad pin, like a shoe like pin. Get the latch. Yeah, so, uh, which was like creep. a pretty popular thing for like a, for a probably a robber that mm-hmm. an experienced robber to you. So he uses that a lot. Total creep. He had with him a stolen meat axe. So again, he probably stole this from uh, like another grocery store. Yeah. They connected it that way. 
He entered the Rosetto's bedroom where they were fast asleep, and before either could wake up to defend themselves, he attacked Conchetta with the meat axe, cutting her collarbone. She woke up and instinctively Ugh. turned away from her attacker, and then start. And then uh, he started swinging over and over again, cutting up her face. And oh God! The attacker then quickly went around to Joseph's side, where he struck him twice in the face with one blow, slicing through the cartilage of his nose. Ew. Then the attacker dropped the meat axe and ran out the house without taking anything. Oh, so just fuck people up and run? Yeah. Mm -hmm. Joseph struggled to retrieve his gun, which he shot several. So, like, Joseph got out of bed and, like, struggled and, like, got to his dresser and pulled out a gun and then just, like, shot it in the air. He was trying to get, like, people to hear him. So the neighbors were alerted. Police quickly arrived on scene and an ambulance was called despite their life-threatening injuries and the incredibly bloody scene. Both Joseph and (gasps) Conchetta was survived the attack. She lived through that? Joseph lived another two years dying of non-related causes, though their friends and family would say like he was really screwed up after that. I'm sure. While Conchetta, who was not even recognizable after her attack, lived another 30 years. Wow. They both weren't able to give any details about who their attacker could have been because they were just like both jammed up. Yeah. They were hit in the face like right away. But now everybody was like, we don't think this was John Flannery because now there was these other attacks. So months passed and the police still had no clear suspect. And it seemed like they were in the clear of another brutal attack until June 27th, 1911. Again, in the early morning hours, an intruder broke into the home of Joe and Mary Davy at Arts and Galvez Streets. Joe and Mary were, say it with me, Italian grocers. Oh, my God. <laughs> and they lived above their shop. They were fast asleep when the intruder broke in through the back of the store by prying open the window with a railroad pen. After climbing through the window, he made his way up the stairs into the Davy's bedroom. Mary woke up to see a man standing near their wardrobe. She could hear only the moaning of her husband. The intruder demanded he tell her where the money was. She was too shocked to answer. And growing impatient, he grabbed a porcelain mug from the side of the bed and hit her over the head with it, knocking her unconscious. When she awoke, she was very dazed and unsure of what was going on. She heard knockings at the front door of the grocery store and told the customers, who who was a regular, that her husband was still sleeping. He could see how disoriented Mary was, and it looked like she had blood on her face. A short while later, the same customer came back with a few other men, and they made their way into the Davies, and when entering the bedroom, saw Joe laying on a blood-soaked bed, and Mary was still not all there. She was still pretty hazy. Oh, my God. So they called the cops. They called the damn cops. Called the damn cops. Good job. Why don't they call these the Italian grocery murders? He doesn't even use an axe the whole time. I know. So the, well, because right now this isn't the Axeman yet. The Axeman is 1918. Got it. And now this is, these are just kind of similar things. Okay. But they're different. And we'll get into it again, but most of the police at this point are starting to think that like it is those black-handed crimes. Mm -hmm. Investigators pretty easily piece together the scene. The intruder broke in, attacked Joe by fracturing his skull with a weapon only police could assume was another cleaver since nothing seemed to be left at the scene this time. Hmm. Joe was fast asleep when he was attacked, so there was no chance of him even defending himself. Skull fragments and pieces of brain were found on the blood-soaked sheets. His revolver was found untouched laying on the side table. So this is also the first time that if 
those other cases are connected at all. This would be the first time that like it seemed like the intruder actually wanted to kill this person. Right. Which some believe if it's the same person that it was like he got like a taste and was like, ooh, I kind of like this. In the bedroom, it was clear that the intruder brutally hammered the grocer, smashing his skull and drenching the bed and the bottom half of the mosquito netting in blood. Also, like, all these beds had mosquito netting because, like, of all the bugs and stuff during that time. Nothing was stolen from the scene. It did seem that the intruder was looking through a trunk, but nothing was taken. The Daily Picayune, which was the local paper, picked up the story the next day, running the headline, Fiendish Cleaver Abroad Again. (gasps) Fiendish Cleaver, also a better name. Yeah, right? When Mary was a bit more clear-headed, the police questioned her again, but she gave a very similar story. She confirmed that the man spoke unaccented English. He did not look or sound Italian. So that's a pretty clear statement. Mm -hmm. She woke up to him rummaging through the wardrobe. He looked white, clean-shaven, about five foot eight, but not real strong-looking. He was wearing a blue jumper or workman's shirt, black pants, and no hat. Because she didn't hear him moving around the house, she felt like he might have been barefoot, too. Well, we already established that that's Mm -hmm. a thing he does, so. Joe Dabby died a few days after his attack, which was a super sad fact. Um, They were actually a pretty young couple. They were newly married. She was, Mary was only 16. No. And she found out she was pregnant. Oh, Ew, yeah, so they were sad. a young couple. I think he was he was under 20, too. So, like, how Ew, scary is that's that? That's awful. Almost a year went by with no arrests and no other attacks of this nature. The police were pretty certain the black hand was responsible. That brings us back up to May 28, 1912 at the Scambra's house. So, from what we learned from the early cases, the Scambra's case is different in that the intruder used a gun to kill the husband yeah. and inadvertently killed the wife. Though some of the setup was very similar, investigators wouldn't have considered this part of the Axeman's doing if it wasn't for the chalked written note left years later near the Maggio's home after their murders in May of 1918. Hmm. And now we're back at the beginning. So okay. after Joseph and Catherine Maggio's death, the Times-Picayune started running front-page stories about the Axemen from 1910 to 1912, like, being back. They were like, this could be a connection. And yeah, it obviously yeah, could be, it could you be. know. Shortly after 7 a.m. on June 27, 1918, Louis Bessumer, a grocer but not Italian. Oh, okay. And his mistress, Harriet Lowe. So there's another Harriet. Mm-mm. There's also a lot of Josephs. <laughs> Popular names, I suppose. So they were found in their bedrooms laying in a puddle of their own blood, both mm. bleeding from their heads. John Zanka, the driver of a bakery wagon who had come to the gro- grocery in order to make a routine delivery, was the first to see them. Police were sent over immediately. Lewis's grocery store was located on the corner of Dorgenois and La Harpe Streets. French. All the French. I know. I apologize. That's what gets us and every time. Our Canadian, French-Canadian listener is like, what the fuck are you Mm-mm. saying? <laughs> anyway, his apartment was above the shop. Police were made to believe that Harriet Lowe was his wife that slept in a separate room because he likes to keep the fan on. But later they would realize they weren't married. <laughs> I just, I like to sleep with the fan yeah. on. So that's my wife over yeah. there. <laughs> yeah, for a long time they thought like, oh, your wife, your wife. But it was just his mistress. Mm-mm. 
Now, I've had two slightly different versions of this story. One is where Harriet Lowe was first attacked on the porch at the back of the shop where she was struck several times with the axe, then crawled inside and up to her bedroom where she passed out from her wounds. Meanwhile, the attacker moved on to Lewis, who was asleep in his bed. So in this one, Harriet was attacked first and somehow outside of the house and then came back in and then he went up to Lewis. The other version is that Harriet was in bed with Lewis, asleep, very similar start to all the other cases. Without ever waking up, Lewis was struck with the blunt end of the axe before his right temple, causing a long cut over his right eye and the force causing a non-threatening, non-life-threatening skull fracture. And I say this because, like, the doctor came in and he looked, like, crazily bloody. But then once, like, checking, it was, like, just, like, this, like, little cut on his face. And then there was some, like, you can see that he got hit hard. But he was, like, he's going to be fine. But I think head wounds bleed. Yeah. A lot of times you'll have a cut on, like, your face or head and you'll wipe it down. You're, like, oh, wait, it's just this tiny little thing that caused all of that. Mm Mm-hmm. Wild. So then the attacker moved on to Harriet Lowe, who was a, who was hacked several times, doing most of the damage to her face and left ear. She was unrecognizable, and the police did not think that she had long to live. They sent her off to the hospital immediately, but knew that they should question her as soon as they could, since she was the only one to see their attacker. Oh, yeah. But she's just, like, real fucked up That's, like, face. the Bundy stuff. Like, the woman that, like, walked in, like, walked oh, yeah. out of it with her jaw hanging off. Yeah. That woman, like, lived and told her tale, too. It's bananas how much injury a human body can withstand and remain alive. It's amazing. (sighs) The police found the axe in Lewis's bathroom. The axe belonged to Lewis. Same. So this, again, was the same MO now. Mm -hmm. Weapon used was borrowed from his victims or stolen and left on site. So while in the hospital, face all fucked up and on a ton of painkillers, the lead investigators questioned Harriet Lowe. Oh, poor thing. And led her into saying that she was attacked by a mulatto man. Of course. The investigators found out that Lois, that, sorry, that Lewis Wibicon, O-U-I-B-I-C-O-N, a 41-year-old African-American, started working at Lewis's grocery store just a week prior. Mm-hmm. So, obviously, he did it. Yep. The investigators worked a case to book him, but it fell apart when they couldn't figure out any motive for this Lewis. Ob- I feel like I'm saying his name wrong, but oh, Obacon. I don't know. <laughs> it looks you like spelled that. it. You yeah. gave it your best. <laughs> um, but anyway, they couldn't find any motive for him. They would have thought that he would have stolen money or something like that, but there was literally nothing. Their to motive is like just, that's a black guy. Yeah. And he also didn't have any priors, so they were like, okay, he was just a nice guy. We tried, but, like, we Mm -hmm. couldn't do it. So they decided to go back to Harriet, who is still heavily medicated and has major head trauma and severe nerve damage. Oh, my God. She tells police that Lewis, and this is this Lewis Bessumer, so Mm -hmm. the guy she's with, that he is actually German, and even though, like, so that he's actually German, but he'll deny it if you, like, talk to him. (sighs) (laughs) <laughs> she's like he's a German spy and I don't know <laughs> but it's a little shady how he got that money to open that grocery store he's he doesn't sp- even sound, he's just kind of Europe because he's not Italian he's just kind of European but he doesn't sound German like at all oh my god and he's like I'm not German <laughs> um, anyway, right I'm yeah, not yeah. German <laughs> just hanging out here with the Italians please don't call me German <laughs> That's how I like to imagine it happening. (laughs) 
So the lead investigators think that they uncovered some real top secret information. <laughs> the U.S. had just entered World War One in 1917, and there was a big concern for German espionage. So Americans, oh my were, God. So Americans were told to be on the lookout for German spies. So that was in her, like, muddled up brain. She was yeah. like, oh, must be a German spy. Yeah, so... Lewis was arrested, but then let go two days later. The lead investigators were fired and a new team was brought in. <laughs> Get out of here. Yeah. You're ridiculous. Harriet Lowe was healing up, but her face was still partially paralyzed. Oh, she had no. always she had always been a beautiful woman, so this disfigurement was really unsettling to her. She decided to get corrective surgery, but the procedure caused more damage and she died two days later. Oh, no. But not before telling the police that her attacker was actually Louis Bissumer. Like, this he's not like, just German, but he is the one that attacked me. Oh, my me. God. They had gotten into a heated domestic dispute. He tried to kill her with the axe, and then she retaliated, injuring him slightly. Like she that. had a lot of theories. Yeah. So the investigators were like, okay, um, even though she is clearly brain damaged, she has never steered us wrong before. This is going well, you guys. So they arrest Lewis, who claims that he did not do this, obviously, and that the attacker is still out there. I mean, I shouldn't say obviously. I don't know. That that yeah. very well could be the case. Doesn't seem like it, though, considering she's, like, just trying to pin it on him in all these weird ways. Yeah, but, and, and I guess... Some people are like, well, she was attacked so horrifically, and then he wasn't. Like, he he was attacked, but not, like, just mildly, right. you know? Mm -hmm. It's almost like maybe he could have, like, hit himself, or if she said that she tried to, like, come at right. him. So their case is getting some media traction, because it is. It's like a wild goose chase. That's you know, bananas. Of course, forth. that's news. And guess who shows up during uh, this case? Lois's wife, who is just out in Cincinnati. She's oh, like, oh, no, this poor man's wife. Yeah. It's like, I I'm sorry, are you a German spy now? And cheating on me with what? Harriet? What's your life? Who lives in another room because of the fan? Nine. <laughs> I'm not German. <laughs> so, <laughs> Lewis was charged with murder, and he served nine months before being acquitted on May 1st, 1919. After a 10-minute jury deliberation. Oh, my God. His life was already ruined. And they really didn't have any other proof besides Harriet's hazy account. So. <laughs> She's in the courtroom. She'll be like, just <laughs> kidding. He did it. But also, he flew in um, on, a, on a helicopter, yeah. which hasn't been invented. Isn't he the cutest buddy? Look at him go. Yeah. I think that guy is also a possum. <laughs> What's happening? <laughs> so, though I would argue that Lewis's acts might have also been proof besides... Harriet, you know, like his, it was his act. Yeah. Wasn't it? Yeah. Okay. But alas, this case is considered part of the Axman's murders. Mm -hmm. So going back to 1918, on August 5th, 1918, the eight months pregnant, 28 year old Anne Schneider. Oh, of, no. Stay away from the pregnant women. You no, know, of Elmira Street, awoke to find a dark figure standing over her and was bashed in the face repeatedly. Her scalp had been cut open and her face was completely covered in blood. Mrs. Schneider was discovered after midnight by her husband, Ed Schneider, who was returning late from work. Schneider claimed that she remembered nothing of the attack and gave birth to a healthy baby girl two days after the incident. Her husband told police that nothing was stolen from the home besides six or seven dollars that had been in his wallet. The windows and the doors of the apartment appear to have not been forced open, and authorities came to conclude that the woman was most likely attacked with a lamp that had been on a nearby table. 
James Gleason, who police said was an ex-convict, was arrested shortly after Schneider was found. Gleason was later released due to a complete lack of evidence and stated that he originally ran from authorities because he had so often been arrested. Oh. Yeah. (laughs) Run away! Yeah. (laughs) The lead investigators began to publicly speculate that the attack was related to the previous incidents. So this just, like, keeps getting connected in Mm -hmm. the papers now. And it's going a little bit away from it being, like, the black hand. You know, Mm -hmm. they're, like... And I also think that as much as they want, as much as some police would like to just be like, it's it's just the Italians doing this to themselves yeah. and like just intruders coming in. I do think that they wanted it to be one person so that if they found one person to blame, they could mm-hmm. be like, we got them. Everything's taken care of. Bye. Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. No, that's, that makes sense. So on August 10th, 1918, Joseph Romano, another Italian grocer, was attacked in his sleep. Joseph lived with his two nieces, Pauline and Mary Bruno, who woke up to a commotion from their uncle's room. When they ran to check in on him, they saw the assailant fleeing the room and their uncle laying there with a blow to his head, which resulted in two open cuts. He was able to walk to the ambulance, but he died two days later to severe head trauma. The home had been ransacked, yet no items were stolen from Romano. It's just, like, so weird. Yeah, why? What is happening? I know. It's also interesting because one of the first attacks, too, where he gets that money from under the bed. Like, mm-hmm. sometimes, like, they'll have a couple dollars that he might yeah. be able to take. Yeah, they had, like, eight A lot of times if he just spent, like, one more second and looked under the bed, there'd be, like, a whole box of, like, lots more cash that that's, like, where they kept yeah. it. And any... People and weren't keeping all their money in a bank back then. It was in their house. Right. And like, with the, it was just under their pillow. They're not going to sleep on stacks of cash under no, their plus pillow. Plus, like, where's the grocery store till? If they live above the store mm-hmm. or they are, like, taking that draw at night. Yeah. Yeah. So I weird. don't know. So authorities found a bloody axe in the backyard and discovered that a panel on the back door had been chiseled away. Ugh. The girls provided a brief description of the killer, a dark-skinned, heavy-set man who wore a dark suit and slouched hat. Though the description of the attacker was just a little different. He was like a little chunkier now. Maybe you can't be getting in that door panel. Exactly. That's like weird. Is he like mm-hmm. reaching up and touching the knob through the door panel or climbing I through it? I mean, it? he could. That could be the other thing. Because it could, could just, just be, be your arm. If you, yeah, If you knock it out and then you just unlock it from the inside and open the door, you don't need to crawl through a door panel. Yeah, that would make sense. Yeah. Okay. All right. I like it. But other than other than him being like a little chunkier, Mm -hmm. um, the M.O. all seemed to be the same. Mm -hmm. Um, There was an Italian grocer. The attack happened while he was sleeping. Um, He didn't bring his own weapon. He like grabbed one from there. Then he left it behind and he didn't steal anything. And he entered the home in like a very weird, sneaky way. He was just feeling a murder that night. So the Romano murder created a state of extreme chaos in the city with residents living in constant fear of an Axeman attack. The Axeman was silent for several months after this. He, like, needed a break. Yeah, we all need a cooling-off period when we're serial murdering. Mm -hmm. On the evening of March 10th, 1919, screams were heard coming from the Cortemiglia residents who lived on the corner of Jefferson Avenue and 2nd Street in Gretna, Louisiana. Is that how you pronounce? Gretna, I think so. It's like, but that's right, the border of New Orleans. It's, like, right there. Yeah. It's uh, it's actually, it's a suburb across Mm -hmm. the Mississippi. So the Cordemilia were not Italian grocers, but their neighbor who heard the screams was. Huh. So e, I think it's e, e Orlando, I-O-R-L-A-N-D-O, mm-hmm. e Orlando Giordano, a 69-year-old Italian grocer, 
rushed across the street to see what was going on. When he arrived, he saw Rosie Cordemilia standing in the doorway, blood gushing from her head wound and clutching her dead two-year-old daughter. No! Charles Cordemilia was laying on the floor, so this was the husband, um, and he was bleeding profusely. The couple... Well, they were rushed to the hospital where it was discovered that they both had skull fractures. Nothing was stolen from their house, but the panel on the back door had been chiseled away Just and a bloody axe was found on the back porch of the killed home. Killed this baby? Yeah. I don't understand. <sighs> oh, that's next level. Rosie would then tell cops that Orlando Giordano and his 18-year-old son, Frank, were the attackers. However, Orlando was a 69-year-old man. Frank was too fat to fit into a door panel. But as you said, he could have just put his arms yeah, through. Yeah, so you could I just reach up and unlock the door. And Mr. Cordemilia, so Charles, he passionately decide, denied that they were involved. He was like, no, no, no. I don't know what my wife is saying, but like they did not do this. But the police wanted to arrest someone and to give peace of mind to the public who were afraid of the ax who were afraid that the axeman was back. So Frank was sentenced to death by hanging, and Irolando was sentenced to life in prison. Charles was so upset with his wife's accusations that he divorced her after the trial. Ugh. And a year later, Rosie announced that she falsely accused the two men out of jealousy and spite. Oh, so there's two God. stories to like what this could be. Mm-hmm. Apparently, the Giordanos were the Cordemilia's business competitors and had a previous dispute that was taken to court. And so that's like one thing. So she was just like mad and spiteful. Okay. But another one, which I think might make more sense okay. as to why she likes held on to this. Yeah. Is that investigators recognized Rosie as a prostitute. So she was a little younger. Okay. She was pretty. Um, they recognized her as a prostitute and leaned on her to accuse Frank and Orlando as the attackers because they needed someone to blame. And because they were there, it just seemed like it could make sense. Um, but luckily, she came clean and Frank and Orlando were released from prison since her statement was the only evidence against them. Oh, my God. And thank God she did speak up before Frank was hung. A few days after the Cordemilia's attack, a letter from the Axeman was published in the Time Picayune newspaper. And this was the letter that John yes. read at the beginning. Yeah, cryptic and so dramatic. So dramatic. Really dramatic. So I'll just read the last part again. A little refresher. Um, Yeah, just a little refresher. So, undoubtedly, you or Orlinians think of me as a most horrible murderer, which I am, but I could be much worse if I wanted to. If I wished, I could pay a visit to your city every night. At will, I could slay thousands of your best citizens and the worst, for I am in close relationship with the angel of death. Okay. Now, to be exact, at 12.15, earthly time. Of course. Thank you for the clarification. On next Tuesday night, I am going to pass over New Orleans. In my infinite mercy, I am going to make a little proposition to you people. Here it is. Mm. (laughs) Ta-da! I am very fond of jazz music. And I swear by all the devils in the nether regions that every person shall be spared in whose home a jazz band is in full swing at the time I have just mentioned. If everyone has a jazz band going, well, then so much the better for you people. One thing is certain, and that is that some of your people who do not jazz it out on that specific Tuesday night, if there be any, will get the axe. Well, as I am cold and crave the warmth of my native Tartarus, and it is about time I leave your earthly home, I will cease my discourse. 
hoping that thou wilt publish this, that it may go well with thee. I have been, am, and will be the worst spirit that ever existed, either in fact or realm of fancy. Jesus I love it. Christ. The Axeman. Oh. All right. So we got our orders. We got to play some jazz. Okay. Yeah. Get the jazz going. <laughs> and he'll leave us alone. God. God. He loves, he loves some jazz. So everyone... Get your hands out. We're jazzing it out. You better jazz it out, because if you don't, it's axe time. On Tuesday, March 19th, the jazz music flowed from homes across New Orleans. Dance halls were filled to capacity, and professional and amateur bands played jazz at parties at hundreds of houses around town. And no one was killed. Great. great. They did it. It was so good. Thank the Lord. It was Mm -hmm. over. Mission accomplished. (laughs) Or so the New Orleans thought. God damn it. (sighs) So that was in March, right? That right. was great. Okay, March was good. We like March. Mardi August Gras. 10th, 1919. Mm. Steve Boca, say it with me, Holly, an Italian, Italian grocer. Because <laughs> it's the Italian grocer murders. Yeah. Woke up to a dark figure looming over his head. Steve was knocked unconscious. Upon regaining consciousness, Steve ran to the streets to see if he could catch the intruder, but realized quickly that his head was cracked open. Oh, no, Steve. I know. He ran to his neighbor's house where he collapsed. He recovered from his injuries, but could not remember any specific details of the encounter. On September 2nd, William Carson escaped the lethal axeman when he fired several shots at an intruder who had broken into his home. The killer left a broken door and an axe behind. Oh, shit. I bet he was, like, pretty grateful. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) So since the axeman failed, he went out the next night. Oh, man. On September 3rd, 1919, neighbors broke into Sarah Lawman's house after they had not seen or heard from her. They found the 19-year-old laying unconscious on her bed, suffering from severe head injury and missing several teeth. Investigators said that the intruder entered the apartment through an open window and attacked Sarah with a blunt object. They found a bloody axe, a bloody axe, and discovered on the lawn, on the front lawn of the building. Bloody axe. Lawman did recover, but could not remember any details of the invasion. Oh my God. (sighs) I still have nothing. The people of New Orleans, especially the Italian-American community, were once again in a state of hysteria. Who was he and was he even human? They were like, oh, God. On October 27th, 1919, Michael and Esther Pipitone operated an Italian grocery at the front of the apartment building on the corner of South Scott and uh, Yulo Street. U-L-L-O-A. Yulow. Sure. There was a... Yuloa. 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 I don't know. Anyway, we got to go there so we can learn these street names. I've been there. Well, I got to go there. I know. We got to go together. So there was a circus in town on Tulane Avenue nearby, and they stayed Told open. Told the circus was popular. Yeah, and they stayed open late since they were so busy. After closing up shop, they said goodnight to their six kids and went to bed. Oh, no, I don't like it. Esther was awakened by a noise, and in the dark room, she saw a large axe-wielding man and a smaller man fleeing their bedroom door oh, into, into the children's room. She heard no, no, Mike no, no, next no, no, to no. her moaning. He had been struck in the head and was covered in his own blood. She jumped out of bed and started yelling for help. Her eldest daughter, Rosie, ran to tell a neighbor and ran into a deputy sheriff, Ben Corcoran. She frantically told him what was going on, exclaiming that it looked like the axemen came to murder her father. Hmm. When the deputy Corcoran arrived, he he said that Mike's head was smashed in, pieces of brain, skull, and blood were splattered all around the room, and the murder weapon was left on a chair beside the bed. 
It wasn't an axe, though. It was a 14-inch iron bar with a heavy 3-inch iron nut on the end. Oh, God. Investigators questioned Esther, who claimed she saw two men, a tall, thin man and a shorter, stockier one. Hmm. She didn't see much more before they ran out of the room, through her kid's room, and then out the back window. So, like, that was, like, the backyard. Okay. So, luckily, they didn't harm the kids at all. God. Mike was rushed to the hospital where he died two hours later from 18 blows to the head. And this was the last known attack of the New Orleans Axemen. So, Miriam Davis, who wrote The Axemen of New Orleans, The True Story, which we will link in this week's show notes, believes the letter was not written by the Axeman. She believes that the letter was written by someone who edu- who was very educated and does not think that the Axeman was actually well-educated. Hmm. And also, like, in um, the beginning of my story, when I talked about that chalk-written note, yeah. there was a lot of misspellings in that, too. Mm-hmm. Um, so, this like, is so Tony, Jack the Ripper. That's yeah. so weird. So, like, Mrs. Tony mm-hmm. was spelled T-O-N-E-Y, but it would have been, like, T-O-N-Y, like Anthony, mm-hmm. you know? And then or the maybe last it name, wasn't. We don't know. Yeah. Well, well, we do. We have records okay. of that. There you go. And then even the last names were, like, written weird. So Right. So this is It just didn't who... seem like somebody that was Got educated. It. Yeah. Instead, she theorizes that a man named John Joseph Davilia wrote the letter. He was a musician and jazz composer. Mm. And right after the letter was published, he came out with a composition called The Mysterious Axeman's Jazz. Don't scare me, Papa. <sighs> he made a pile of money off that song. What a publicity stunt. And Davis says, and I just think that he's the most likely suspect, at least for the letter. That's yeah. that tracks. Yeah, which is wild. Um, there was another prime suspect uh, that that didn't really go anywhere. It was Joseph Mumphrey. That's um, the name that always comes up when you Google this case. Yes. So at first I was going to like write a whole thing about him. But um, since doing this and a lot more research has like gone into it, mm-hmm. uh, it's most historians and investigators find it to be more of like an urban legend because there it. isn't a lot of proof to it. Mm-hmm. Um, but it has to do with uh, the last killing. So has to do with Esther uh, Pipitone. Mm-hmm. And she had remarried mm-hmm. after her husband died. And this guy actually went missing. <laughs> like he like left her a couple oh, years wow. later. Um, but John Mumphrey actually uh, came to steal from her. And he had a gun, like had a gun pointed at her. Mm-hmm. And he was like, I'm going to, I'll kill you like I killed your husband. Oh. And then she, so I think she was, I think he did steal from her. And then she went back at him with a gun and like killed him or like that she wanted to attack him. Um, but she claimed that like that's who the killer was. Huh. So there's a little bit more to it, but really it all ends up stemming. As I did more research, it was kind of like, uh, we don't really know. So interesting. I don't think that they'll find out. But so this woman uh, that wrote that book, um, Miriam Davis, she's her uh, story is kind of interesting um, I listened to part of a podcast that she was on. It was the most notorious okay. podcast. Um, but she, that book that she wrote, she was one of the first people to actually dive into the Axe Man murders. Um, before she did, it was a lot of just the 1918 and on and just like little, just a little so the, bit of like. Yeah, that's what you were saying before. Like there's another half that people don't really yeah. seem to talk about. And there was, it was really just like bullet points, but she went to New Orleans and she just like did the work. She like wow. grabbed all of the paperwork. She like went I mean, back there are definitely and, people that still do things like mm-hmm. that. That's like, yeah, get in there and find it. And, uh, and she really, she, yeah, she just 
research the shit out of this thing and for her. she just awesome. kept finding like little trails and was just like wow these are really actually connected and the newspapers at the time didn't give a ton of detail so it was like she'd find these little stories and then she'd find the police report and uh-huh. then the autopsies and other things and then pile them together to be like oh shit these were really similar yeah that, they're so it's hard to believe they weren't connected yeah interesting so I thought that was really interesting. But um, she was interesting to listen to on that podcast. And she, like, kind of runs through her book, which a lot of this is taken okay. from. Yeah. and uh, It's so, so interesting, too, that there's only, like, really one suspect. Yeah. There just isn't even any other theories. Yeah. I also, like, can't help but sit there and go, like, what if you just fingerprinted those things? So Because they... you... This is right at the precipice of when fingerprinting was used in law enforcement. Right. But it was also still real new. And so fingerprinting wasn't really accurate yet. Right. They didn't get a lot from it. But you would just think there's so many instances. There's like so many weapons you could try and pull from. You think something. I would think that. So this case obviously reminds me of Jack Ripper, but it also reminds me of um, the Golden State Killer. And I just wondered, like, even if they did all the fingerprinting, if it was going to be, if it was somebody that was ever in their system. Because it's really the only way you'd find out. Yeah, I guess that's true. Ah, So, I don't know, just anything. It seems like, how did you not, uh, people were not that careful back then. How did you not, like, find something in so many different cases? I mean, the Golden State Killer, too, but he was, I feel like, a little bit more meticulous. Oh, there was but, something else that was interesting. One of the shoes, so they saw a shoe print out of somebody's house. Okay, yeah. And it was four, it was like a shoe print that was for like a size four. That's a tiny foot. Which then I was like, okay, and then what if he is fitting into that? Like, what if he is like kind of a smaller person? What if he's a lady? Or what if it's a lady? Or what if it's a young, again, kind of like the Golden State Killer. What like if they it's a newsboy? It's never a newsie. <laughs> That's not who it is. Okay. <laughs> not a newsie. No. But it's interesting in that era that they picked jazz, too, because jazz had just started. Jazz wasn't, like, ubiquitous. It wasn't like every household was playing jazz all the time. It was still, like, sort of underground. So that's why this woman, Mariam Davis, believes that it was, like, one of the greatest marketing ploys that letter. I mean, yeah. Yeah. If they just wanted to tie it together. I mean, that letter, I feel like that letter was not connected to any crimes. It's just so wild, right? Yeah. Plus, it's like if if the actual person that committed all those crimes was had that flair for the dramatic and was that like fanciful about what they did, that wouldn't be the only time they did something like that. Right. They would have had to call attention to themselves before that it wouldn't have been like right before i'm done i'm gonna do this great big awesome crazy thing Mm -hmm. it would have been like the whole time all of my crimes are huge and dramatic like if you look at the ripper murders all of those are like huge dramatic looking murders they're Mm -hmm. all outside and like the person is just torn limb from limb and like i don't know but even then those letters a lot of people think are all faked as well Mm -hmm. it was just a similar kind of the only way to get publicity back then and when people saw something was happening they just wanted to kind of jump in on the yeah. On the wave, they wanted to to be involved in just anything. Right. Yeah. God, so we just will never yeah. know. Wouldn't it be crazy if it was, like, not just that day, but it was, like, for every year? So on March 19th, I think. 
you have to always you play jazz. To, yeah, on March 19th, you always have to do that. And that was like a thing that like New Orleans had to do. Wouldn't it be like fun though if they did that? That would it kind would of turn, turn into, into something, something fun, fun. Which, but then like a hundred years later. So we're already a hundred years yeah. later now. Like we start to think like that was like an urban legend. And then the killings start when they don't do it. Oh my God. Jazz demon. You got to jazz it out. Got to jazz it out. Or you you get snuffed the fuck out. Yeah. Ooh. Yeah. Oof. Yikes. There's just no answers. No. That's a lot. It's just like, and I never knew what he wanted. Yeah. It, what, what was your end game? Yeah. I don't know. I mean, those are the killings that plague people. It's yeah. the same thing with Jack the Ripper. Like, why did he just kill these women like one mm-hmm. after another after another we don't what was that he they weren't didn't have any money mm-hmm. they had nothing to really offer him in any way shape or form and nothing was taken why why did this happen right so i don't know it's just somebody who really really fucking hated italian grocers Ooh. wow right okay so well, uh, toast i don't even know who to toast i guess oh. The, like, bazillion victims in this yeah. case. There was so many. So yeah. to all of the victims. Um, to Miriam Davis for doing all of the legwork for this. Yes. So thank you. Well done. Um, and to you, it. Leslie. Thank you. For coming back around and being right. like, I'm going to do all this work. I'm going to figure coming it out. back around. So many songs from Leslie. <laughs> Cheers to Leslie. And if we were an Italian grocer and left an axe in our backyard... We would be dead. Thank you for listening to the We Would Be Dead podcast. Hit subscribe now to never miss an episode. Rate and review our show on iTunes. Follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at Would Be Dead Pod. And join our Facebook group to discuss the podcast and more. Les éléments en roulé, jeans.